0: So if you want to follow the Bible reading this morning, um, um, you, want to, might, you might want to pull up Acts 9. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 9. Acts 9 verses 1 to 9. And then we're going to skip to verses 17 to 19. Acts 9, 1 to 9, then verses 17 to 19. If you're a visitor here, uh, good morning, hello, welcome. Um, it's, great to have with, uh, it's great to have you with us um, I hope you're getting a feel as we're worshipping, as Andy led us so beautifully in worship there. <clears throat> and we had those um, contributions, if you like, of stirrings of what God has put on people's heart. I hope you're getting a feel for the passion and the faith and worship we have for this Jesus. We, when believers gather in this kind of setting all around the world, actually, what you're experiencing is God. The Holy Spirit amongst us. The Spirit of Jesus Christ reigning, ruling, encountering, bringing joy, bringing healing uh, this morning. And that's why we love to gather and sing and pray. So if you're new, if you haven't been coming that often, please keep coming, come again. Um, Over the last few weeks we've been looking, as many of you know, uh, through the book of Acts, in our sermon series called spirit break out, how the early church exploded across the uh, known world overnight. One of the things we touched on last week is uh, that, that this phenomenal growth and change in society, uh, was, the, was, was, a, was something about the phenomenal growth and s- uh, amazing change that happened in people's lives. And what we touched on last week was that it happened through conversions conversions, one by one. And what's amazing about Acts is it's a little window, um, and it, a little window into a, a, some, some breathtaking glimpses, if you like, case studies even, um, of some of those amazing radical conversions. Last week, Last week we looked at How how an African eunuch meets Philip, who was also himself a recent convert, and then gives his life to Jesus and gets baptised. A man who had so many barriers to the Christian faith that God overcame and brought him in. That's a phenomenal story. And this week we're probably going to be looking at probably the most famous conversion a story in the history of the world actually Saul of Tarsus many of you might have read about Saul of Tarsus Saul of Tarsus a fanatical christian persecutor converted to the great apostle paul that became his um, that became his new christian name who became probably one of the most prolific church planters missionaries and bible letter writers in history in the history of the planet so far That's phenomenal. Fourth century uh, church, Father John Chrysostom uh, says this about the Apostle Paul. Put the whole world on one side of the scale and you will see the soul of Paul outweighs it. Those are big words, aren't they, for um, a human being? So let's look at how this happens, uh, how it all began in Acts 9, verses 1 to 9. You might want to follow. Saul's conversion. Meanwhile, Saul... Was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so, so that if he found any, any there who belonged to the way, Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Damascus to Jerusalem was 150 50 miles. What would you do? Uh, what would you walk 150 miles for? How committed are you? He was. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, Saul was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. He was in shock. And then we're going to jump to verse 17. Then we read a man called Ananias is summoned by God to go to Saul and restore his sight. he regained strength. Let's pray. Yeah, Lord, I thank you for these glimpses into reality. I thank you, Lord, that you are a God who, who, who encounters us, that you are a God who loves us, that you are a God who comes personal up close. And I pray this morning as we hear this story, as we unpack it, as we, um, um, as we see what's happening, I pray, Lord God, that you would pour out your Spirit on us this morning so that we... Can not see Paul as some out there, untouchable hero of the faith that actually we can't learn any from, anything from, that he was unique and nothing like us. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that as Paul said, imitate me. I pray, Lord God, that we can see many things in this conversion encounter that we can learn from, grow from, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ out of. We ask that in Jesus' name. So... The subject this morning is conversion. We don't often talk about it, actually, in probably the detail I'm going to talk about it. We certainly talk about it on Alpha. Conversion coming to faith. So, a bit like last week, we're going to have some quick-fire points, uh, quick-fire things to think about. Five things. Firstly, Christian conversion is about sharing the relevance and importance of Jesus with everyone. Christians believe, hear this, Christians believe everyone needs Jesus. That's a controversial statement, isn't it? Very controversial in our, in our day. The world we live in would rather say, hey, it's fine what you believe, Raj, but, in, but please could you keep yourself to yourself, keep your faith private. You shouldn't go around converting others. I remember when uh, Trevor Phillips, the Equalities Commission's uh, commission chairman, said religious rules and principles should stop at the temple door. That's what he said. In other words, there's no room for faith talk and religious thinking in the public sphere. Let's just sweep it under the carpet. But as Christians, we know that the Bible tells a totally different story, don't, don't we? In fact, the whole book of Acts doesn't fit what Trevor Phillips says at all. We, uh, we skipped verse 15 today, but after he's, convert, uh, after he's converted, God calls Paul specifically to a chosen purpose. My chosen instrument, that's what God says of Paul, my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. Not just the local Jews or his own kind, but far more reaching than that. To proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings, very public, very public. There's a tension out there, Jubilee, all of us, that we must walk through graciously, appropriately, but with faith. So what do we say? What do we say to that? Well, I think there are, there are big problems with saying you, you, you can't, you shouldn't share your faith. Um, I'm going to give you two very briefly. Firstly, when you say it's okay to believe in Jesus, just don't try and convert everybody, what you're really saying is, because I don't believe what you do, you don't have the right to tell others. Now, you might not say that directly because that sounds a little bit narrow-minded, but if you really think about it, that's what you're saying. Because in reality, the gospel, the joy news of Jesus... Uh, As we unpacked last week with the African eunuchs conversion, is as big as I'm, if if it's as big as I made out last week, then the only, only rational response would be to go out declaring it to everyone, wouldn't it? Terry Virgo, uh, who fathered and founded the movement of global churches that we belong to, um, uh, who was meant to be here this morning, oh, last week, sorry. But unfortunately he became poorly, so hopefully he's coming back soon. He's not seriously ill as far as I'm aware. Terry Virgo writes, the whole church has been lied to and it is the church's responsibility to bring truth to it. In fact, to not take this joy-bringing, life-releasing, nation-healing news out to every tribe and tongue would be the ultimate in wickedness if you really think about it. Look, when you, say you can, when, when you say you can believe in Jesus but keep it to yourself, you're saying essentially don't believe in Jesus. That's a problem. Secondly, when you say, yeah, you can believe in Jesus but don't bring it into the public sphere. Um, um, what you're really saying is that my understanding of the world is far more superior to yours, so keep yours to yourself. That's arrogant. What gives you the right to say that? A uh, a previous Archbishop of York and uh, then Canterbury, William Temple, famously said, church is the only community in the world that exists primarily for its non-members. Jesus told us early on in Acts, you will, not you might, maybe. See how it goes. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and to the rest of the world. That's what he says. Why? Because Jesus loves the world. Sharing the good news of Jesus is probably one of the greatest privileges we have as Christians. Serving the people and places that God puts us in. Secondly, Christian conversion doesn't count anyone out. Another thought might be, well, religious belief is for those who aren't doing so great. Maybe the weak ones, maybe the bad ones, the really bad ones. A bit like a plaster. Uh, we, can, we can see why they, might need the, that why they might need faith, why they might need religion. It's fine for them, but not for me. I'm okay. I'm doing all right. I'm a nice guy. I give to children in need every year. Listen. Do you know who Saul of Tarsus was? He was a devout Jew. He was one of the Jewish religious elite. Top of the pops, holy man by Jewish standards. He was a Pharisee. He came from a family of Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews the real deal, from, from the ancient Jewish tribe of Benjamin. This guy was bright. He was brilliant, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the leading authorities in the Supreme Jewish Council. He was recognized very unusually this to happen by Rome as an honorary Roman citizen, even though he was a Jewish man. Um, even though he was a native Jewish man, very rarely granted to outsiders. Even Paul tells us in Philippians 3, as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. That was his assessment. Probably the most religious and moral person you could get. And yet, hear this, hear this, he needed to be converted. That was his conclusion. You're not Christian here this morning. How do you compare to Saul of Tarsus, Paul? If he needed Jesus, could it be possible that you might need Jesus too? Thirdly, Christian conversion is a process, it's a journey. Have you heard the saying, Gosh, that lady had a Damascus Road experience? Some of you might have heard that phrase. It means a sudden eye-opening, in a flash turnaround. It means a sudden dramatic reversal from an enemy to an advocate. And the phrase actually comes from this story that we've just read this morning. But you know what? Really, it's a bit of a misinterpretation. In some sense, this Damascus Road experience was not a Damascus Road conversion, wasn't it? That's not what Luke was trying to get. In fact, Luke, the writer of Acts, wants to debunk that myth so that we can all see uh, in this breathtaking conversion, a model, and example for ourselves, Saul's conversion actually took time. And to get this really, when we read Acts 9 about Saul's conversion, we should read it alongside Acts 22 and Acts 26 for a full version of what actually happened. In Acts 26, we hear Paul's account of his conversion describing that process that involved him coming to faith. He clarifies that Jesus didn't just say, why do you persecute me when he sees the light uh, on the Damascus road? Paul tells us that Jesus followed it up with this. It is is hard for you to kick against the goads. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? And why is it important? Well, when I, used to, uh, uh, when I used to travel to India to see my family when we were little, uh, when me and my brother were little in Calcutta and the surrounding villages, you, uh, you would see lots of working cattle in the streets, all over the place actually, um, uh, pulling heavy loads. There'd be cattle, and there'd be cattle owners walking uh, with them or walking by them, prodding or smacking them with what was called a gourd. A spiked little stick, so that Daisy the cow wouldn't wander off into the streets, or wouldn't wouldn't wander off into danger. When Paul remembers Jesus telling him, "It's hard for you to kick against the goads," he's telling us that his coming to faith was a painful process. Saul's stubbornness was persistently pricked and smacked by the beauty and character and lifestyle and miracles that he had seen in the Jerusalem church as he, had, uh, as he kind of stood and watched from afar. He was smacked and poked by grappling with the Old Testament Scriptures which he loved so dearly, declaring and prophesying this coming Messiah, Jesus. Even after his Damascus Road blinding vision, it took him three full days to really process and think through all that had happened before, before taking that leap of faith. In fact, Ananias says to Paul, what are you waiting for? He was waiting. This turnaround jubilee took time and thought and goading. It wasn't a flash in the pan decision at all. Before I came to jubilee, I thought church was a place where people went specifically not to have fun, to deliberately get bored. You see, I was brought up in a Hindu family. We lived in bramble 's farm Middlesbrough. I was part of a close knit Indian uh, community, having festive religious Hindui parties um, all the time. Me and my, me and the people I hung out with, we really knew how to have fun in a religious setting, not like some of the churches I travel, I visited i didn 't have a clue what was going on in terms of God when we were and Hinduism and the rituals we were performing. Um, Um, or or what we were praying to or what we were worshipping, that matter, if I'm honest. But we had a good time. Um, Lots of food, good food, hot food, Indian food. But as I got older, I started to become more attracted and interested in the whys and wherefores of Hinduism itself. What was it all about? God was goading me. I started reading the mythology and all the writings of the famous holy men of Hinduism. It seemed, all, it seemed okay at the time, good teaching about morals and stuff, don't kill each other, live in peace with one another, don't tell lies, don't nick your next door neighbor's car, that kind of stuff, but good stuff, really good stuff. There were also gripping stories to read of gods with more than two arms and an elephant riding into battle on a rat. You think Lord of the Rings uh, was good. You should have heard the stories that my mum told me at bedtime. I couldn't get to sleep. But the more and more I got into it, I realized the fun couldn't last. It became clear that as I was growing up, believe me, I was growing up, as I was searching for meaning in all of this, beyond the colourful myths, beyond the extravagant stories, I couldn't find what I was looking for. I couldn't find, if I'm honest, God in it all. Over the following years, I went to college and then to university down in London and Manchester. I found a new freedom away from my Indian parents. And, uh, and, all, and, 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 and in all that distraction, spiritual things became a bit of a blur. The god and goal of my life suddenly became pleasure and status and selfish romance and drink. I did what I wanted to do. Increasingly, I saw myself as pretty invincible. I was a doctor, top social class ranking, don't you know? I was confident. What's more noble and caring than to look after the needs of the sick? Why on earth did I need God? In fact, if I thought about it, he needed me. I needed to do him a favor. Look at the mess of the world. He needed help. I could give him it. I decided God was for weak minded people like people who come to church. You lot. As you're probably getting my pride and arrogance was getting way, way ahead of me. When I look back and uh, I realised that I was a young man actually running out of control fast, fast, fast up a hill not realising the cliff ahead of me. I I was about to fall. Listen, life always has its cliffs. Suddenly, in the haze of a few months, my mum was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 50 and died within a few weeks. Also, around the same time, Robin, my brother, one one day decided to gas himself uh, in his car. Only 28 years old. um, Suicide um, note in the glove box. I'd lost everything I loved. Subsequently, depression kicked in. In a downward spiraling of um, lifestyle of drugs, alcohol, and me-satisfying relationships, out of control, a slave to bad choices, totally addicted, in a mess. That's what was going on. All the security and value and worth that I'd hung on to, hung my very life on, suddenly became all meaningless. Yet, in the midst of all that turmoil, quite surprisingly really, I was shocked. God turned up. Why on earth would he do that for a big-headed fool like me? A doctor friend called Liz, invited me to an alpha course. I said, yeah, right, didn't really know what I was going to. But I did hear there was food and cake, so I said, yep, I'm in. You know what, I loved it. I loved the buzz, the friendships, the eating together, the talks. Things started to make sense. My mind was suddenly open to the realities of my own life. There was time to stop and think and breathe. What was happiness, love, purpose, satisfaction really all about? about? Where did God fit into all of this? A bit like on Life Plus, last week was brilliant. You could hear, you could see people engaging and encountering God, actually. And then one morning after a few weeks of Alpha, I remember sitting in the middle of St. Michael the Belfry, the baby church next to the massive Um, uh, Minster in York and what I used to call the early morning dinosaur service because everybody was over the age of 100. That morning with tears rolling down my eyes, God intervened. God showed me his love. God gave me a glimpse of real happiness, purpose, satisfaction. God revealed to me Jesus' holiness, that he was a perfect, uh, that he was a just and perfect God. And next to him, I wasn't. That was the diagnosis I painfully needed to hear for so many years. I needed a saviour. He needed to sort this ragtag life out for me. He needed to show me the way. I couldn't get out of this mess on my own. I needed desperately what I'd lost. Perfect love. God's love. That morning I took the biggest step of faith ever. I decided to put my life in his hands. Jesus showed me his love and his forgiveness for all the terrible things I had done. He showed me mercy. When I felt ashamed, he showed me, uh, he took my place on the cross as I walked free. He gave me the motivation, joy and power to change. He put me in a family again, the church that wasn't boring at all. It was vibrant, it was fun. He gave me purpose in life. I I, I saw things in the world that with his help, I could make a difference. I discovered the greatest gift to pass on to my kids and friends, him. I'd, I'd surprisingly discovered not a set of rules or a path or a way to happiness, but a person, a real person, who changed my life. My happiness and joy was found in him. Jesus took me on a long journey of discovery and exploration and even pain and goading, and through it all opened my eyes. Jubilee, Christian conversion is always... A process. Four, Christian conversion requires thinking made personal. Coming to Jesus doesn't require us to take our brains out. Obvious. Not quite, actually quite the opposite. Grappling with the gospel requires real understanding and reflection and questioning When you look at the Scriptures, it becomes clear that Paul didn't really launch into his ministry onto the world stage until more than a decade after his conversion. Ten years. He made a point of giving himself faithfully to the foundational principles of the Christian life. He got baptized in water. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He joined a group of Christians. He turned away from his former life of sin. In that time... Years and years he spent in Bible study and prayer and seeking God's will for his life, praying for the sick, reaching out, evangelizing, sharing his faith. Over this time, bit by bit, uh, he was gathering the insights and the understanding uh, that which would ultimately make him so effective as a missionary to the Gentiles. Jubilee, God wants us to copy Paul as Paul copied Christ? There's no shortcuts. What does your Christian walk look like day to day? This is why we run Alpha and Life Plus bit by bit. We're setting an environment over 20 weeks or so for people to discover and explore and adventure with God, the whole truth and reality of Jesus' message of salvation and hope. This Paul writes in Colossians 2.2, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom is hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christian conversion starts with thinking. That's what happened to Paul. But it's not only that. Lots of people in the Bible saw evidence, but they didn't all believe. Even Thomas had all the facts, but he had to make it personal. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This process of Christian conversion jubilee isn't less than thinking. It's much, much more. The point... When Saul became, the point where, in the story, the point where Saul became physically blind was the point where he saw most clearly. Do you get that? It's a bit like when you're dreaming and you don't know you're dreaming when you're asleep, but suddenly when you wake up, you suddenly realize, I was dreaming. Suddenly in his blindness, the reality and truth and understanding of the gospel came alive to him. All that time of God goading him, of grappling with what he'd saw, with resisting all the evidence that was being paraded uh, in front of him in the Old Testament, suddenly all that over over, over time grips his heart. It's about me. Wayne Grudem writes, a Bible teacher, he writes, in deciding to depend on Jesus to save me personally, I move from being an interested observer of the facts of salvation and the teachings of the Bible, to being someone who enters into a new relationship with Jesus Christ as a living person. God, the Holy Spirit, was driving the gospel into uh, into Saul, so much so that it even changed his very name, his identity, to Paul. This Paul, Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He'd realize that had happened. The old has gone. The new is here. Not just a patch-up job, totally new. He turns rubbish, as Liz shared this morning, into beauty. And Jubilee, that's what others see in us as we declare Jesus to the world. It goes much further than just a set of facts or debate. It's what the gospel looks like in your life and my life. Listen, this is important. When everything else is falling apart, when everything else in your life is falling apart, don't you fall apart, but look to God. That's how Paul's life panned out, didn't it? He was flogged, beaten, tortured, insulted, imprisoned all the time. Everything in his life was falling apart, but he didn't. He lived out his truth. He made known his theology day to day. There's no greater proof of Christianity that's more valid than that. How are you handling it when your life falls apart? We have people who can help you. Christian conversion is about sharing the relevance and importance of Jesus with everyone. Christian conversion doesn't count anyone out. Look at the apostle, look at Saul of Tarsus. Christian conversion is a process. Um, Christian conversion require, uh, is, a, is a process. Christian conversion requires thinking made personal, finally. Christian conversion is receiving the gospel. What's the gospel? We said this last week, we unpacked the gospel in a big way, hopefully, um, What's the gospel? It's the joy news of Jesus. What's that joy news? Listen, that you are worse than you ever dared imagine, but in Christ you are more beautiful than you ever dared believe. That's the gospel. And Paul says it right here. See verse 4, Jesus says of Saul's murderous rampage against other believers. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul's persecuting Christians. Saul's persecuting the church. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Hello, Jesus. Didn't you hear me? The detail. What's he saying to Saul? He's saying this, look. Look, Saul, all your violence, all your anger, all your revenge, all your murderous acts are, are not against them, the Christians. They're against me, Jesus. You're not just disobeying my law. You're not just violating my commands. You're killing me. You're fighting me. You're hurting me. Don't you see it? Open your eyes. That's what true relationships look like and feel like, don't they? Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great Baptist preacher in the 1800s, tells a true story in one of his sermons Uh, It was about a man and his wife who lived in a remote part of Britain who were such vicious and nasty people that when they had a little baby boy, relatives came and took the baby boy away from them. They actually paid them for taking this uh, baby boy away. This son um, was adopted by another family, a more caring family. And the story goes that the father and the mother continued to descend into terrible depravity and violence and terrible lifestyle. Eventually, the father becomes a robber, a highwayman, um, and he would watch people along a deserted stretch of road, then pounce on them, mug them, and steal what they had. One evening, when it was getting dark, he saw a very rich man, a rich-looking man, um, young man coming down the road, and he was particularly mad that day at rich people because he blamed these guys for all... Uh, for. For his life and all of his problems, and so that, that day, um, as this rich man approached uh, the mugger, the father, he was particularly violent against him. He beat him, he kicked him. Eventually, he killed him, murdered him. Of course, you know who this ra- rich man was, don't you? It was his son. He had heard the, he had heard his father and what he had heard about his father and wanted to rescue him. He'd made a lot of money as an ambitious, disciplined, brilliant young man and and had decided he was coming back to his hometown to try and find his father, to give him money and appeal to him look, dad, turn your life around. After the father was rested, his father realized what had happened. Initially, the father thought he'd just broken the law, but then suddenly he realized he'd actually killed the one who had come to save him. If the band can come up, that would be great. Do you believe that's the cross, isn't it? That's the cross, isn't it? That that was Jesus' rescue plan. The one who came to save us, we put to death. The one who took our shame and sin and nailed it to a cross, we shunned and pushed back the one who came and broke through the dividing wall of all our dishonor and disregard and disobedience to God, to God, we tied up on a tree. But in his death, in Jesus' death and resurrection, he defeated all of that. It is finished, he cried out on the cross. His victor- he was victorious, as we heard earlier, in battle. As Spurgeon again said, Jesus Christ was up on a cross hurting, bleeding, dying, looking down at the people, forsaking Him, denying Him and betraying Him and in the greatest act of love in the universe, what did He do? He stayed. He brought us life, new life, life to the full, life with Jesus forever. Do you know what it means to be a Christian? It means to be so uh, it means to be so in Jesus that when God sees you, he sees Jesus and says over, over you, into you, through you, this is my son, this is my daughter. In him, in her, I am well pleased. That's the joy news of Jesus. That's what gives you and me the motivation to live life, live a life that pleases him and declares him. And all of his beauty and love to others. That's the wonder of conversion. Being born again. That's why it's not a private affair. Quite the opposite. Jesus is the hope of the world. Jubilee. To end. I want to encourage you with boldness. Confidence. Compassion. And clarity. Will you make this wonderful Jesus known to everybody? Let's stand. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you. We love your cross. We love everything that you've done for us. We love how you sacrificially gave, poured out your life as we sang earlier for us. But the ground began to shake. The tomb couldn't hold you. You rose again. You rose again to new life. You are the first fruits that all the hope of eternity, foreverness that we have in you. And I pray this morning, I believe there are people here this morning who don't know Jesus. There are people here this morning like the Apostle Paul who have been going to church for years. But suddenly he was converted. I believe there are people here this morning who are hurting healing who are searching, exploring. And this might be the first encounter you've had with a living God, not just in what I've said, but in what has been brought over the morning, the Bible readings that you've heard, the songs you've sang. And I just feel this morning is a morning for you to respond to Jesus. So before we sing this next song, I just want to ask everybody to bow their heads, if that's okay, because we don't want to embarrass anybody if they want to give their life to Jesus this morning. You can give your life to Jesus this morning. And there's three things about that. One, you say sorry. Coming to Jesus requires a humbling, a going blind, if you like, physically, a humbling that allows you to say, sorry, Lord, I'm sorry for all my disobedience, years of disregard, years of dishonoring you. Years of saying stuff, you. Years of not putting you in your rightful place as king in my life. Lord, I'm sorry for this. I'm sorry for that. That's what becoming a Christian is about. Coming to Jesus with all your sin. But if you ask him, the next word is forgiveness. He comes with forgiveness. He comes with amazing grace. He comes with amazing clarity. He brings your, He turns your life around. He says, you are forgiven. Forgiven. Only God can do that. That's you this morning, your response. The third thing is thank you. It's praise. It's celebration. It's thanking this amazing God who took your sin on the cross so that you could walk free. I'm just going to give you a few minutes now to say those things. Sorry, Lord. Forgive me. And thank you.